Well, good morning. So good to see you guys. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the house. Thanks for sharing your special day with us. And thank you to everyone else as well who has come out today or tuned in online uh, to be with us for the conclusion of our mini teaching series within Matthew's Gospel on the topic of hypocrisy. Next week, we're covering the King's teaching on wealth. And we're going to learn how to honor God with our wealth. And I'm looking forward to that and studying hard for it. Uh, But today we're concluding a mini-series within Matthew's Gospel on the topic of hypocrisy. Now, every week we have people joining us for the first time uh, online and in person. So let's kind of begin uh, with a little definition of what it means to be a hypocrite. To be a hypocrite, it's real simple. To be a hypocrite means to be an actor. And what is an actor other than someone who puts on a show? An actor puts on a performance in order to be applauded by others, and that is literally the textbook definition of a hypocrite. And this is what was happening throughout the nation of Israel. Uh, The people, being influenced by the bad example of their leaders, uh, began practicing hypocrisy. They were doing their religious acts of devotion not to honor God, rather to impress other people so that other people would look at them and think, wow, you are a very spiritual person. So beginning in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus confronts the hypocrisy that was so prevalent in his day. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And friends, what we need to understand is this. This verse is a general warning against hypocrisy. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness, that is your various religious acts of devotion, before other people in order to be seen by them. If you are supposedly doing these things for God, but in reality you're just pretending to do it for God because in reality you're doing it for the purpose of impressing other people with your devout spirituality, that is to be an actor. That is to pretend. That is to, use a Bible term, be a hypocrite. And this is what Jesus warns against. But having given the general warning against hypocrisy in verse 1, Jesus now uh, gives three specific areas in which the Jews were practicing their hypocrisy. First, Jesus addresses their hypocrisy in giving. And he says, you're not giving because you love God or want to help the poor. No, you're giving to impress other people with your generosity. And second, Jesus addresses their hypocrisy in praying. And Jesus says, you're not praying in order to commune with God and have a relationship with him. No, you're doing it so other people will think of you as a really spiritual person. And moving right along, thirdly, Jesus addresses their hypocrisy in fasting in verses 16 to 18, which is our text that we're covering today. Now, please understand, Jesus wants those who claim to be his disciples, he wants us practicing these different religious acts of devotion before God. He wants us practicing these three core spiritual disciplines. Apart from Bible reading, these are like the three core spiritual disciplines for the follower of Jesus. I mean, giving to help the poor is good, right? 
praying to God is good, right? Okay, likewise, fasting is good. But we must not only do the right things, we have to do the right things for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus is addressing uh, in this mini-series on hypocrisy. He's saying, do your spiritual disciplines in order to honor God. Do them to express your love to God in a tangible way, but never do them to impress other people. If you're doing them to impress other people, all the while pretending or acting like it's for God, you are a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus is addressing. So Jesus is teaching, understand, it's corrective. He sets out to restore purity to our various religious acts of devotion to God. And today, he sets out to restore purity to the spiritual discipline we call fasting. Now, here's an overview of where we're going today. We're going to begin talking about fasting in the Old Testament, and then we're going to talk about fasting in the New Testament, and then by way of application, we'll talk about fasting today. And we're going to begin in the Old Testament versus the New, even though we're in a series on Matthew's Gospel, a New Testament book, for this reason. When we get to Jesus' teaching on fasting in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, Jesus assumes that we already have in place like a solid Old Testament foundational understanding of fasting. And the problem is that most of us don't. <laughs> and so today we're going to begin talking about fasting in the old, then fasting in the new, then by way of application, fasting today. All right, that's where we're going. Let's dive in. Here's the first thing we're going to cover. We begin with fasting in the Old Testament. And there's so much that I could say on this topic. I've studied so much for today's sermon, and there's so many things I could share, but I've boiled it all down to the three most important things that I think God wants you to know on this topic. If you're taking notes, here's your first fill in the blank. The first thing we learn about fasting in the Old Testament is that it was commanded by God. It was commanded by God. When the Israelites came up out of their slavery in Egypt, God had them make a pit stop at Mount Sinai where they received his laws and God gave them many laws, including instructions concerning the observance of seven annual feasts, one of which was called Yom Kippur in Hebrew, or as we know it, the Day of Atonement. And in Leviticus chapter 16, God commanded that on the day of atonement, the people would fast and pray. And specifically, they were to fast and pray uh, in relation to their sin. They were to weep and mourn and fast that they were sinful before a holy God. And from sunup in the morning till sundown in the evening, they were to pray seeking God's forgiveness. Now, interestingly enough, and you might be surprised to learn this, but did you know that this is the only command in all of Scripture, not just in the Old Testament, but in all of Scripture concerning fasting? This is one of the many things I love about God. In the Bible, we have seven different commands to feast and only one command to fast. <laughs> but this is the only command in all of Scripture about fasting. But here's the deal. Even though the Jews were only commanded to fast one time a year and not even for a 24-hour period, only from morning till evening, the Jews began to practice fasting on any number of occasions. And, and I've studied every single one in the Old Testament. 
and almost exclusively when we see fasting being practiced outside the annual day of atonement where the fasting was for the purpose of mourning over sin, almost every single one was when the Israelites found themselves in either a personal crisis or a national crisis. And I'm not going to give you all the examples because the list is pretty long, but I'll give you three just to establish this point. The first example comes from Judges chapter 20. And in this passage, the Israelites fast and pray after 40,000 of their troops were killed in battle. So, so this was a desperate situation, see? They, they had gone out and got whooped, and then they had gone out and got whooped, and now they were going to go out again, and they didn't want more of their countrymen to die. And so they, they are just desperate, and so they seek God with prayer and fasting. Our second example comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12. You may recall how David uh, had a child with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. David committed adultery, and a child was born as the result. And in judgment for David's sin, God struck the child with illness. And though the baby was conceived in sin, David loved the child. And he begged and pleaded with God with prayer and fasting that the child's life might be spared. So it wasn't just some ordinary situation, and David says, let's fast and pray. It was a desperate situation and David sought the Lord with prayer and fasting. Uh, third and final example uh, from the Old Testament comes from Esther chapter 4. And here we see another example of the Jews just being desperate before God. The Jews at this time were living in exile and the Jews were dispersed throughout the land of Persia and a wicked man named Haman plotted to assassinate and eliminate all the Jews. And so Esther calls for a national fast and says, we are going to be destroyed. I have to go before the king and beg for our lives, but it's illegal for me to do so. Uh, the king might put me to death and then all of you to follow. So it's desperate. Would you fast and would you pray with me? And so everyone did. But do you see, almost exclusively in the Old Testament, the Jews fasted in times of crisis. They fasted for victory in battle, bodily healing, God's help in the face of danger, protection from enemies, uh, you know, uh, safety uh, when they were going on a long and dangerous journey, so on and so forth. Fasting, therefore, was akin to making a vow. In the Old Testament, the Jews didn't make a vow on any and every occasion. I swear by the God of heaven and may he strike me dead if I don't fulfill my word to meet you after church for a Father's Day brunch at your house. <laughs> no, vows were reserved for special occasions. And that's what it was like for fasting on special occasions. Likewise, uh, fasting could be akin to giving an offering. The tithe was systematic. You made your money, you harvested your crops, you returned the 10% that belonged to God. Something, again, we're going to talk about next week when we cover the king's teaching on wealth. But giving an offering was different than tithing. Giving an offering was only when the occasion called for it, such as when the temple was built. They took up a special offering so that the construction could take place. So do you see, fasting, like the making of a vow, like the giving of an offering, was reserved in Old Testament Israel, apart from the annual day of atonement, where the fasting was for mourning of sin, it was reserved for desperate situations, and the people would only do it when the situation called for it. And that's the first thing I want you to see, that this was commanded in the Old Testament, but the Israelites practiced it above and beyond what was commanded. 
Now, the question begs, how did God feel about them practicing fasting even when they weren't commanded to do so? Well, how God felt about it totally depended on uh, how they went about fasting. Here's the second thing I want you to see. When done right, fasting was commended by God. When done right, it was commended by God. All throughout the Bible, including the Old Testament, fasting is viewed as this positive thing, this honorable and virtuous spiritual discipline practiced by godly people. For example, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, God confronts the sin of Israel, imploring them, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And this is not the annual day of atonement. This is fasting outside of the annual day of atonement. And as the Jews weeped and fast over sin, even outside of the annual day of atonement, God commended the fasting. He invited it. It was something that was pleasing in his eyes when it was done right. So, number one, God commanded fasting. And when it was done right, fasting was commended by God. But as we know, even a good thing can quickly become perverted. And that leads us to the third thing we need to understand concerning fasting in the Old Testament. When it was done wrong, it wasn't commended by God. When it was done wrong, it was condemned by God. And friends, fasting went wrong pretty quick in Old Testament Israel. It became thoroughly corrupt. What happened is the people started fasting in order to twist God's arm to get him to do what they wanted him to do. Now, unfortunately, these same people, they were living in sin. They were disregarding the commands of God. They were doing whatever they wanted. They weren't sorry for their sin. They weren't repentant of their sin. They weren't trying to honor God by living a holy life. Yet, when some crisis came up in their life, they're like, oh, I'm going to fast and pray, and God will be obligated to do what I ask. And this was such a perversion of God's intention for fasting. It was never meant to twist his arm to force him to do what you wanted, despite how sinfully you may be living. And so God says, fasting's become corrupt. I know what I need to do. I'm going to send a great prophet, the prophet Isaiah, and I'm going to send him with a message to confront the corruption in fasting. And that's just what happened. Take a look. God sent the prophet Isaiah to say this, tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. Friends, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? It means to be an, an actor. God says to the people through Isaiah, tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. That's the way it appears to be. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, you know, by denying ourselves food. And you don't even notice. I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. 
So there is a kind of fasting that gets us somewhere with God, but this is not the kind of fasting that does. Verse 5, you humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. So here, God is letting the people know that when they fast outside of the observance required on the Day of Atonement, uh, if they do it right, it's, it's commendable in his sight. But if they do it wrong, it's something that is condemned in his sight. And how twisted of them, right? They thought God would honor their fasting here that he hadn't commanded, all the while they were breaking all kinds of things that he had commanded such as helping those in need. So God says, in effect, if you want to fast something, why don't you fast your sin? That would be pleasing in my sight. But just because you're giving up food and saying some obligatory prayers and you think you're going to twist my arm and get your way, sorry, that is not how it works. That kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. All right, so that's a little overview of fasting in the Old Testament. Commanded by God, and even when done outside of his command, if it's done right, it's commendable. If it's done wrong, it's to be condemned. And now that you've seen fasting in the Old Testament, let's switch gears and now study uh, fasting in the New Testament. Now that we've had the foundational understanding of fasting in the Old Testament, now and only now are we ready to go ahead and understand the words of Jesus um, on this subject. In the New Testament, fasting had become corrupted the same as it had become corrupted in the Old Testament. Now, the form of corruption was different, but it had become corrupted nonetheless. In the Old Testament, the corruption was this. They were living sinful lifestyles, but then fasting, thinking they could twist God's arm to do what they wanted despite their sin. But in the New Testament, the corruption was different. In the New Testament, the corruption was this. They were fasting in order to show off their supposed spirituality to other people. In other words, they were doing it to impress. And so what happened in the Old Testament when fasting had, come, had become corrupted? God sent his prophet to address the corruption. Well, the same thing happens in the New Testament. When fasting became corrupt in the New Testament, God sent his prophet, Jesus, okay, God in the flesh, to come confront the corruption. So Jesus comes along, just as Isaiah had done 700 years earlier, to address the corruption in fasting. And here's what Jesus says in our text today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, as opposed to how the hypocrites fast, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
All right, so there's the teaching, and now I want us to see it in its original historical context. So here's the deal. The religious leaders would fast twice a week on the second and fifth day of each week. And guess what the second and fifth day of each week was? It was market day. All right, this was an agrarian society where the farmers would make their living by their flocks and their crops. And on the second and fifth day of each week, it was market day. And all the people uh, would come into town and and there would be the bustling market jam-packed with people. And this, of course, was the time and the place in which the religious leaders chose to practice their fast. It's just like with their giving to the poor. They wouldn't help someone off in the middle of nowhere because they had no audience to perform for. And it's like the obligatory prayers that we talked about last week. They didn't say them on their own. They would go to a busy synagogue or a busy street corner and then they would recite their prayers so everyone could applaud their performance. And it's the same when it came to fasting. Oh, oh, it's not market day. Are you fasting? Of course not. There's no one to perform for, you know? So they would come to the crowded market, and that's when they would fast. And what we need to understand is this. Back then, there were these very distinct markers that would indicate if someone was fasting. Now, we don't have that today. Like, if you were fasting right now, or you were fasting right now, or you were, like, I wouldn't know. Like, today, there's no markers. But in first century Israel, there was all kinds of markers. And this was a tradition that had been passed down throughout the history of the nation. So uh, I did a study on this to to get all these different indicators, and uh, let me share them with you. If someone was fasting, they would, first of all, wear a sad face. They would refrain from using fragrant lotions, okay? A.K.A. they passed on deodorant that day. They sometimes would tear their clothes. Other times, instead of tearing their clothes, they would dress in rough burlap. And understand, that was not like a typical garment that someone would wear. So if you were dressed in burlap, everyone's like, oh, they're in deep mourning. They're fasting. They're, they're praying. They're doing something, you know, spiritual uh, before God. Sometimes they would sprinkle themselves with ashes. Uh, they would always weep so that, you know, the ash and the whatever and the water and mixture, it really makes a real mess on your face. And in the absence of ashes, uh, sometimes they would go and sprinkle themselves with dust. So so do you understand how ostentatious this was? They showed up on market day when there was a big crowd. They looked sad. They smelled bad. They'd be dressed in torn clothing or burlap. They'd be covered in ashes or dust or both, and they would be crying. And none of it was for God. It was all for show. It got them attention. The religious leaders would do this, and then the common people would say, wow, look how spiritual they are. I wish I could be that spiritual. Man, look at them just showing their dedication before God. Wow. Wow. And they would slow clap it out. So Jesus comes along, and he says, let me tell you something. Do not fast like that. He says, when you fast, don't draw attention to it. If you do, God will not be honored. He will not approve of what you're doing, and he will not act on your behalf. He says, the only thing you're going to get when you put on a show for the applause of others is the applause of others, but you will get nothing from God. So Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face. Now, maybe you've been confused by that. 
Because it almost sounds as if Jesus is saying, hey, if you're really sad, anoint your head with oil, wash your face, and pretend to be happy. But friends, what would that make you if you were pretending? It would make you a hypocrite. Jesus is not saying, don't be a hypocrite this way. Instead, be a hypocrite this way. (laughs) So what is he saying? And it's very simple. The anointing of the head and the washing of the face, all he's saying is this. Do the normal bodily grooming that you would normal do. Put on those fragrant lotions, okay? You don't need to be smelling. Don't wake up and dishevel your hair so everyone's like, oh, they're clearly fasting. Do away with the ashes and the dust and the tears, which made your face a big muddy mess and makes you look all gloomy. He says, don't do that. That's ostentatious. That's drawing attention to yourself. He says, hey, when you're fasting, anoint your head with oil, wash your face, do all the normal bodily grooming you would normally do so that other people will not know what you're doing. Make it a private thing between you and God. And when you do it this way, God will be honored. When you do it this way, God will approve and he will act on your behalf if what you're requesting is in keeping with his will. Now, there's a lot of confusion when you teach on this because people don't understand sometimes that these verses in verses 16 to 18 in Matthew chapter 6, these are Jesus's instructions concerning a personal fast. Friends, there's corporate fasting and there's personal fasting. Uh, Some of you may know that there's a small group in our church every January to kick off the new year that they say, let's do 21 days of prayer and fasting. And maybe you wonder, are they losing any reward? Are they dishonoring God by breaking his commands concerning a fast? Because we're not supposed to draw attention to it. We're not supposed to let other people know. No, that's a corporate fast. You can't call a corporate fast like Queen Esther did saying, hey, pray that we won't be annihilated. And then somehow like no one knows about it. No, in a corporate fast, people know and that's okay. Jesus' instructions here in verses 16 to 18 are not about a corporate fast, rather a personal fast. And when it's a personal fast, we're to keep it private between us and God. We're not to draw attention to ourselves intentionally in order uh, that we might be praised by others. All right, so that's fasting in the New Testament. And now that we've covered fasting in the Old Testament and fasting in the New Testament, now by way of application, let's apply Jesus' teaching by talking thirdly about fasting today. Fasting today. And we're going to apply this teaching by basically asking, you know, the the who, what, when, where, and why basically of of fasting, okay? We're going to ask five questions about the topic uh, to flesh out how you and I ought to practically apply uh, Jesus' teaching. We're going to begin with this question, should I fast? Because the next four questions all assume that the answer to this question is yes. (laughs) So let's begin with this question, should I fast? I fast. Now, some Christians argue like this, saying they shouldn't have to fast. They don't have to fast. They say, number one, there's only one command in all of Scripture related to fasting, and it was given to Jews who were in special covenant with God in the Old Testament, and that was on the day of Yom Kippur and uh, the Day of Atonement. And uh, number one, I'm not Jewish. And number two, uh, the New Testament teaches that all the religious feasts and festivals, they were all foreshadows of Christ. And now that Jesus has come, he has fulfilled all the foreshadows. And so now all these things are done away with. 
Now, it sounds really good. It's a cogent argument. It's logical. The only problem with it is that it's wrong. I mean, they're right in saying we're not commanded to do that as New Testament Christians. That is correct. But the real question isn't, are we commanded to or not? The real question is, is this something God wants from us and expects us to do, even if it's not commanded? And I think the clear answer to that question is yes. Here's why. Number one, Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. So clearly there's an expectation that we, his disciples, will be fasting. Uh, Secondly, Jesus goes through great lengths here to tell us and point out to us the wrong way to fast. And then after having identified the wrong way to fast, he says, now here's the right way to do it. But friends, what's the point if there's no expectation that we won't even be, there's no expectation that we'll do it. Thirdly and finally, God says, I will, Jesus says, God will reward you if you fast. Now friends, when God offers to give us rewards, treasure in heaven for some spiritual act of devotion that we perform for him here on earth, what is he doing other than incentivizing us to perform certain behaviors that are pleasing in his sight? And just as he promised to uh, bless us and reward us with treasures in heaven for giving to the poor, and just as he's promised to reward us with treasures in heaven when we pray in the way and in the manner and with the motive that he described that we covered last week, he also says, when you fast, I will reward you with treasure in heaven. In next week's teaching, the king's teaching on wealth, he's going to say, when you invest in my kingdom, I will reward you with treasure in heaven. But, but it's all the same. Whether you give to help the poor, whether you pray, whether you invest in the kingdom next week, or whether you fast like we're covering today, God promises to reward us with treasure in heaven when we do. And God offers that reward because he wants us to be incentivized to do that thing which here is fasting. So uh, should I fast as a Christian? I believe the answer is a resounding yes. All right, here's our second question. Well, if this is something I ought to do, then how often should I fast? And here's the great news. The Bible doesn't say. (laughs) Jesus says nothing about frequency. It's kind of like taking communion. We're to do it but we're not told how often. So at some church, it's first Sunday of the month. Other churches, it's once or twice a year. Other ones, it's every single week. Why? Because Jesus doesn't say how often to uh, observe the Lord's Supper or aka take communion. In the same way, he doesn't say how often we should fast. He's more concerned that whenever we do it, we do it in the right manner and with the right motive. He's not so concerned about how often we do it. Now, with that said, I think we can look at the various examples from the Old Testament and the New and kind of come up with uh, several different instances in which fasting would be appropriate. Now, the Bible doesn't give a comprehensive list. I actually tried to create one for you, uh, but I realized that uh, the examples of fasting that are given in Scripture, they're much like the spiritual gifts listed in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and in 1 Peter chapter 4, we see examples of spiritual gifts, but we're never given a comprehensive list. In the same way, there are numerous examples in Scripture of instances in which we should fast, but we're never actually given a comprehensive list. But let me give you three examples just to kind of get you thinking in the right direction concerning times where it would be appropriate to fast. The first example is this, in times of crisis. 
That's what they did all throughout the Old Testament. And if you find yourself in crisis, this is a great time to fast and pray and, and implore the Lord to act on your behalf. Number two, another great time to fast is just when you want to draw closer to God. Fasting is not only for times of crisis, for we read in Luke chapter 2 of a woman named Anna, take a look, who did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So fasting's not only for when we're in a jam, it's also a great way that we can draw nearer to God. And the Apostle James says this in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And fasting is a great way to get close to God because proper biblical fasting is always accompanied by prayer and or the reading of scripture. All right, intermittent fasting combined with a keto diet is all the rage right now. And some of you say, oh, I want to fast, but it's to get your beach bod ready for summer. But sorry, if you're just denying yourself food, it's not a biblical fast. A biblical fast is to fast food in order to feast on God, which we do through prayer and the reading of Scripture. You'll never find in the Bible examples of fasting disconnected from either prayer or the study of Scripture. One final example I'll give to you for when to fast is when you need wisdom for an important decision. In uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, the apostle Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas needed to appoint pastors over the churches that they established on their missionary journey. And what an important decision, right? Who's going to be the spiritual leader of the entire congregation? It's an important decision. And Paul and Barnabas understood this, which is why they spent time praying and fasting for God's direction concerning who to appoint as the leader over the church. So we see that it's appropriate when we need direction from God concerning an important decision, it's a great time to fast and pray. So like, are you considering moving uh, across the country for your job? Are you considering quitting this job and taking on a new one? Are, are you considering getting married? Are you considering if it's the right time to have children or the right time to have more children? I mean, on and on and on the list goes. Are you considering starting a new business, you know, or, or getting out of the business that you've started, selling it to someone else? I mean, the list is endless. But when you have an important decision to make, that's a great time to fast and pray. Now, again, this is not a comprehensive list, but hopefully this gets you thinking of the kinds of situations that would be good to fast and pray in. All right, here's our third question, moving right along. Um, how long should I fast? Now, there's so much misunderstanding here because we read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and we see that Jesus fasted for 40 days. And we go, well, I'm just going to skip on fasting. I'll give to the poor, I'll pray, but fasting, I'm out. You know, I'll study the scriptures, I'll invest in eternity, but fasting, I'm out. Because we're under the mistaken impression that the only God-honoring fast is one that's super long. But friends, to make such a conclusion would be to completely misunderstand Matthew chapter 4. I preached on this a few months back, earlier in this series. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus didn't say, I want to fast for 40 days. Let me go in the wilderness to do that. That's the way some of us read it, but that's just totally wrong. 
In Matthew 4, the Spirit of God led Jesus out into the wilderness, a place where there was no food, and God did this on purpose to teach Jesus to trust him for provision. And Jesus didn't set out for 40 days. He didn't know if God's provision would come in a week, two weeks, three weeks, uh, six weeks, ten weeks. He had no idea. So he was just out there waiting on God to provide. The devil came and said, turn these breads into stone and do this. And Jesus said no. And the reason he said no is because God had led him there to teach him to trust him for provision. So no, the 40-day fast is not like the biblical model. Nor is 21 days. It's become all the rage to fast for 21 days. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do. But that too is not commanded in Scripture anywhere. Did you know that if you were to just skip one meal to fast and pray, do you know that that would get God's attention? And do you know that God would be pleased with that? And I just want to tell you that because so many people don't fast because they think, well, can't do it for 40 days. I'm not even good for 21 days. And so we just say, well, it's, it's pointless. And friends, what I want to say to you is, no, it's not. The Bible says nothing concerning the frequency of a fast, nor how long it should be. So I say that by way of encouragement to get you, skip a meal here and there. Fast. Pray. Study the scripture. Turn to God. Draw closer to him. Ask him for help because uh, you need wisdom for an important decision. Ask him for direction for your life. And, and when you do it in the right manner and with the right motive, God will honor that fast. Okay, number four. Our fourth question is this. Uh, what should I fast? All along, we've been talking about food because in the Bible, when it refers to a fast, it is referring to uh, fasting from food. But I like how in Leviticus 16, it speaks of denying yourself food. It says, you shall afflict yourself on the day of atonement. And I like that. I think there's a principle there where, yes, we should fast food. But in addition to that, I think we can afflict ourselves in any number of ways. Maybe for you and I, it might be fasting entertainment or the news, or social media, or online shopping. Now, with inflation the way it is, we're all fasting online shopping. But I'm talking about in times of prosperity, okay? Maybe you would fast online shopping. So, fasting, definitely with food, but can you go beyond that? I believe absolutely. Any way in which you afflict yourself in order to focus that time, you fast that thing in order to feast on God, and I believe that's honoring in the Lord's sight. Last question is this, how should I fast? And Jesus has made it clear in a way where your goal is not to draw attention to yourself. A quick point of clarification here, if you're married, it would be rude not to communicate to your spouse that you're fasting. And then they make you dinner and then you're like, sorry, I'm fasting. And, you know, or, or, or sorry, I don't want to eat and I can't even tell you why, you know. Understand that we are not forbidden from communicating our fast to other people. What we're forbidden to do is intentionally draw attention to ourselves for the purpose of getting the applause of others. So it's okay to communicate to your spouse. You might have to do it to a coworker or to a close friend. There's times where fasting calls for that, and that's okay. You're not going to dishonor God, and you're not going to lose your reward so long as your motive is not to communicate it for the purpose of being praised by whoever you tell. 
So don't show up to Thanksgiving or Christmas or a birthday party or Father's Day party this afternoon and be like, I'm fasting. I mean, that's just obnoxious. That's just obnoxious. It would be more pleasing in God's sight for you to reschedule the day in which you fast than to do it on a day where you just draw all this attention to yourself. I remember being at a pastor's conference many years back, 16 years ago now, whatever it was, and I went there with another pastor, and we were all instructed to go through the buffet line for lunch, and this guy grabbed a plate and went through the buffet line and didn't take any food, and then we sat down at a round table where all the pastors were facing each other, and his plate was the only one with no food on it. So what does this do? Naturally, it draws out this question from others. Hey, how come you're not eating? And he said, I'm fasting. Come on. I was like, would you like some burlap and ashes to draw more attention to yourself, you know? Just fast another time. That'll be more pleasing in God's sight. All right, let me bring this all together and we'll close in prayer. Friends, God wants us to give and to pray and to invest in eternity like we're talking about next week. But he also wants us to fast. But it's so important, not just that we do it, but that we do it in the right manner and with the right motive. When we do it this way, it honors God. It's pleasing in his sight and he will act on our behalf so long as what we're requesting is in accord with his will. This is what God wants, that we do these things without hypocrisy, without putting on a show, without doing it with the motive of impressing others with our devout spirituality. And friends, how hard is it for us to apply this teaching in our culture? Our culture says, don't even make a piece of toast for breakfast without posting it to social media to draw attention to yourself so you can get affirmation from others. You ever seen these people nowadays? And I haven't been on social media in like over a decade, but when I was, when I realized it was time to get off, people were like, here's my coffee and my Bible and my journal, and I'm just having a, a great quiet time. Post it to the world. And I've got an inkling to believe that many of those people, after they took all the time they needed to actually pray and talk to God, they set it up for a photo shoot. And I wonder how many snapped the picture, posted up to the thing, and then are like, God, sorry, I have no time. I put it all in the photo shoot. I put it all in the post. And then what did I do? I checked to see the likes, the comments, the responses, the, the hearts, the, you know, whatever. That's the culture we live in. Don't do anything without sharing it with everyone. And God says, I'm calling you to step out of the culture in which you live. Amen. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. You live in the world, but don't do things the same way the world does things. Don't be so ostentatious. Don't do it as a show for others. Do it because you love me and let that be enough. Let that be enough. Friends, isn't it enough that God sees it? Isn't it enough that God sees what we're doing and approves of it? And we all have to decide, are we going to live for the applause of man or are we going to live for the applause of God? The public praise of man or the private praise of God? For me, God help me. I want it to be enough that God approves of what I'm doing. Nobody else has to, just him. And I want that to be enough. And God says this, and I close with this. When you're cool with it just being me, that gives you the applause. I'm not just going to be pleased with you. I'm going to be so pleased with you that I will reward you with treasure in heaven. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't have to do that. But he's so pleased 
when we do it in the right manner and with the right motive, that he says, I'm gonna reward you for doing it this way. You could have settled for the applause of man, but you've held out for the reward that comes from God. Church, let's be the kind of disciples of Jesus who practice spiritual disciplines, yes, but who do so in the right manner and with the right motive. If that's what you want, would you join me in prayer? Those of you online, everyone here in person, let's just go to God. Use your own words if you want or follow along with me, but say, Heavenly Father, uh, it's so hard in our culture to not be ostentatious. But God, that's what you've called us to do through this teaching of Jesus. And God, we, we are responding to your call. Our answer is yes to what you want. So God, help us to do things in the right manner, with the right motive, in order to honor you and never to put on a show for others. God, forgive us for the sin of hypocrisy where we've been guilty of it and help us from this day forward to honor you by doing things purely. God, restore purity to our private spiritual disciplines. Let it be between you and us. And that's it, not anyone else. Help us, we pray, because we can't do it on our own. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.